Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. The Commonwealth Club is the nation's largest and oldest public affairs forum. We're nonprofit, nonpartisan, and we welcome all views and ask everyone to be respectful of one another's views as we debate and discuss the major issues of our time. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club. I especially want to welcome you here to the club's headquarters, uh, the first headquarters the club has had in 116 years. And I want to give a special thanks to George and Charlotte Schultz, who served as the honorary co-chairs of the capital campaign that raised the funds to build this building. Thank you. We have so much to thank Secretary Schultz for, and then there's that, too. We are so happy to host today's special event in partnership with the Fort Ross Conservancy and the Kennan Institute. We're going to focus on how our shared history and the unique legacy of Fort Ross State Historic Park can be a platform for cooperation and exchange between Russians and Americans, even amid the severe challenges in relations between Washington and Moscow these days. Going back a half dozen years or more, there's been a reduction in communication between American and Russian citizens, institutions, and certainly government to government. Exchanges and other collaborative programs, some of which have been in operation for decades, have been closing down. With each reduction in human interaction, there is an increase in potential misunderstanding. Today's panelists are trying to bridge that divide. There are so many areas in which cooperation between the U.S. and Russia is beneficial, from health and medicine to the environment to business, science, technology, and national security. As two great countries with major resources and significant challenges, we cannot afford not to cooperate in these practical areas, even when high-level political relations are strained. We welcome you here today for a discussion of common interests and prospects for Russian-American collaboration. We also welcome any new Commonwealth Club members, and if you're not a member, today's a great day to join. As a club member, you commit to staying engaged in our civil society. Our program today will feature three consecutive panels. The first panel will be moderated by Matt Rodansky of the Kennan Institute and features another wonderful friend of the Commonwealth Club, California Governor Jerry Brown, Russian Ambassador Anatoly Antonov, my former boss, former U.S. Defense Secretary Bill Perry, another great American, and Mr. Herman Greff, Russia's former Minister of Economics and Trade and current CEO and Chairman of Sperbank, Russia's largest bank, to discuss the current state of U.S.-Russia relations and how enhanced communication between our countries may be possible. So that's the first panel. The second panel will explore historic ties between native California peoples and Russia by sharing images from a rare collection of native California artifacts that were collected during the Fort Ross era. The final panel looks towards the future by bringing four young Russians and Americans from different disciplines together to discuss their bilateral work and ideas for the future. Before we begin, it's my great pleasure to introduce Sarah Swedler, CEO of the Fort Ross Conservancy. Please welcome Sarah. Sarah. 
Well, hello and good afternoon. I'm Sarah Sweedler, CEO of Fort Ross Conservancy and the organizer of Fort Ross Dialogue, now in its eighth year, in large part due to the loyalty of our three sponsors, Transneft, Sofcomplot, and Chevron. Uh, these three international companies work together across borders, much like the trade that happened at Fort Ross in 19th century California, and they've come together to support for Fort Ross, and we're very grateful to them. Thank you, Dr. Duffy, for, and the entire Commonwealth uh, Club staff for elevating today with your prestigious venue and your professionalism. And it goes without saying that the Fort Ross Conservancy staff and board of directors are the engine that keep our organization running. So thank you. Um, I appreciate all of you joining us on this absolutely glorious Sunday afternoon. It would be a perfect day, I might add, to be outside on public lands at a park such as Fort Ross. Uh, today, instead, we're going to take part in a much-needed discussion about both past and future relations between the United States and Russia. In addition to the powerful first panel that's already been introduced, um, we'll be hearing from members of the Kashaya and Pomo tribes today, and I'd like to acknowledge um, Tribal Chair Dino Franklin, who is in the room, and others from the Kashaya tribe who have joined us today. We're very happy to have you with us. And I'd also like to acknowledge... Um, well, the, the Kashaya, of course, were the first people at Fort Ross, uh, so it's their ancestral home, and of course, they're very much present today. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge the Alaska Native communities uh, who were brought down to Fort Ross under duress during the Fort Ross Russian era, um, and they are still a very active part of our park today. We've got uh, Sabrina Rosenberg and Lauren Peters from the Alaska Native community, and we're very happy that you're here today. Um, so since we will not be outside at a park enjoying, enjoying this absolutely glorious Sunday, let me share a short video of Fort Ross so that you can see uh, the absolute beauty of this place that has kept so many of us inspired. Um, I know from personal experience that the Fort Ross, the power of Fort Ross doesn't come from me standing up here speaking to all of you. It actually comes from the land itself, um, from bringing students from various uh, backgrounds uh, from our backyard or as from far away as say, Vladivostok across the ocean to Fort Ross to spend un uninterrupted time using, the, using their hands, working together on a common collaborative project um, far away from the inter internet and from mass media. And they come there and they feel and learn firsthand the knowledge and stories that this land contains. So with that, I will introduce a short video on Fort Ross. Welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you to our sixth annual Fort Ross Dialogue. Fort Ross Dialogue brings together the Russians and Americans and Russian Americans. And today we quite appropriately meet at the Presidio. We are fortunate to have Governor Brown in the room. Governor Brown. 
Well, a belated welcome to everyone who's come from afar and those who uh, live right here in California. It is important that uh, we have this dialogue, Russia and America, and as we all know, that when you read a newspaper in San Francisco, it's not the same as reading a newspaper in Moscow or Beijing. So we're all reading different aspects of, of the world, uh, but there are a few fundamentals, whether it's climate change or, or weaponry. Uh, the thing that gets me, if I may just offer my personal opinion, that we could have two major countries uh, managing over 7,000 nuclear warheads that could, in fact, eliminate the entire human species. That has to be some form of insanity, but there it is. So that's something we share in common. And we've got lots of other issues that people want to talk about. Fort Ross is a California state park about two hours north of San Francisco. And it's unique because it is an old Russian settlement established in 1812. In 2012, we had a bicentennial. It was quite a big deal. We had ambassadors from both the United States and Russia coming. What unites us is far greater than what divides us. That Russia and the United States have much more in common then we have dividing us or separating us. And that's an important lesson to learn because the headlines are full of all kinds of problems that exist. Dialogue events are, are good for bringing people together. And then it was suggested that we perhaps turn this into an annual event. And so an annual dialogue event was born. From the beginning, it wasn't just a Russian fort. It was a, a meeting place for very different cultures to work together. The native peoples were a very strong presence. In my Iwa, Koshishima Emta, Reno Keone Franklin, Kishaya Pomo, Inopo. We also have felt this need to come together with people who we had connected with over 200 years ago. We would graciously ask your permission to set foot upon your land. Welcome to the Kishaya village of Metini. This is the center, the heart of our people, of our lands. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history of our people are right here where we stand. getting into an experience today, aren't you? We bring students from all over the world to learn together and to have fun in a natural setting. So I think that value of having people enjoying themselves as they connect to people with very different backgrounds is critical. At the Stanford U.S.-Russia Forum, 
has been an important part of the Fort Ross dialogue from the beginning. The idea is that uh, American and Russian young people, uh, some students, uh, some after graduation, uh, begin to become connected uh, through their interest in one another. And Fort Ross gives them a natural convening place. For me, that's, of course, the most important part because I grew up going camping as a Boy Scout at Fort Ross. We need to make an effort uh, to try to learn more of each other, learn from each other, and to educate each other, because we have so much common history, and at the very least, we need to make sure that our kids know where it all started, and then that they will be better equipped and prepared for handling the future. Russian and American politicians uh, do not hear each other. I truly believe that Fort Ross dialogue remains a very important connector between uh, Russia and America. And I think it's important for them to see that there are normal people uh, on both sides. Our fundamentally shared perspective on so many core issues for mankind, whether it's space, the importance of technology in our futures, uh, the need to maintain uh, clean, accessible uh, environmental resources uh, for people and societies, also for nature itself. Uh, those are areas where Russians and Americans overwhelmingly agree. Russian today, Fort Ross represents um, a golden era, a, a point of pride, and also they feel, I believe, a tremendous respect for these people who lived and died at the extreme borders of their of their nation. And to have a cemetery here at Fort Ross where their forebears are buried, this means a lot to them. I was watching a bird fly peacefully across the horizon as I was listening to the last speaker. And the flow of that bird seemed very harmonious and quite in contrast to most of what I find in Sacramento and Washington, <laughs> where the flow is not flowing and the harmony is not harmonizing. So it's good to come out and get a little dirt on our shoes and realize that we're all standing on the same soil. And so I came back to Fort Ross and I heard about the Fort Ross dialogue. Uh, that to me said, Fort Ross, uh, Russia, Russian River, uh, let's have that framework as a non-Washington toxic environment for exploring ways that Russia and the United States can live together in peace and certainly lowered risk of annihilation.
It's a way for us to work with Russia on common ground in a way that's constructive and incredibly important given today's climate. Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us here. And uh, thank you to Gloria for hosting us and to Sarah for the gracious introduction and the video, which I, I very much enjoyed. Uh, I thought for a moment that my reference to uh, having grown up as a Boy Scout camping at the fort was supposed to be reflected in that adorable, round-faced little boy. Uh, but he was blonde. Uh, and he probably also didn't do what I did, which was walked around whittling with a knife, which you're never supposed to do, and actually cut off a small piece of my thumb at Fort Ross. Uh, so I like to say that I also left my blood uh, upon the soil. Um, but I think there are happier metaphors we can use for today's conversation. Uh, I want to thank the sponsors who, since 2012, have made Fort Ross Dialogue possible uh, as part of the preservation and the celebration of this very special place. Uh, they're represented here today. You heard from some of them in the video, uh, Chevron, Transneft, and Selfcom Float. It is really a unique Russian-American partnership uh, to bring the resources together to do what we do. Um, I am, uh, as you know, not just a transplant from uh, the, I think the term that Governor Brown used was toxic environment of Washington, D.C. I, I have no idea what you're referring to, Governor Brown. Um, <laughs> but, but I do feel uh, very, very close to this place, and I'm thrilled to be back in San Francisco. Uh, I was reminded, uh, not just thinking about the, uh, the Boy Scout uh, uh, slogan, which is be prepared, uh, but in fact uh, of another slogan, uh, which is be informed. Uh, and that might well describe what we set out to do today. Uh, I was talking with my mom uh, in the East Bay yesterday before heading over to San Francisco. And, uh, you know, she referenced some of the negative press San Francisco has gotten recently about homelessness problems and crime and things like that. And, you know, said, don't park anywhere on the street. Be very careful where you're walking. Don't be out after dark. And it occurred to me to ask her, you know, mom, when was the last time you were in San Francisco? Um, traffic on the bridge is pretty bad, but uh, I realized that is actually kind of a metaphor for the problem in the U.S.-Russia relationship. Uh, we barely talk to each other anymore. We barely visit. Uh, we barely engage one another in these kinds of truly bilateral platforms. Uh, we almost kind of pass one another as ships in the night, uh, or we look at one another metaphorically, at least through the sights of our weapons. And I think we need to try to transcend that in this conversation. And I'm really honored uh, to be able to bring together this, these distinguished gentlemen to do exactly that. Um, I'd like to start with Governor Brown uh, to echo the welcome uh, and the uh, inspiring and terrifying words that we already heard from him. Um, this is a man who I think needs no introduction in this room, uh, twice governor of California, uh, mayor of a great city right across the bay. So Governor Brown, why don't you go ahead? Thank you. Um, thank you. First, thanks for all of you for coming, being part of this dialogue. Uh, when Russians and talk, uh, speak to Americans, it's, it's important, particularly at this point in our history. And for the Russians who have come from afar, uh, I want to thank them especially uh, for joining together. Uh, to me, uh, conversation, dialogue, communication is an obvious. Uh, but today it's become rather deviant to the predominant uh, culture of, of attack, of tweets, of uh, simplifications, uh, of weaponizing of thoughts and visits and, and even positive gestures. So we're really at a turning point, I think, uh, in our country uh, domestically, and we're at a turning point internationally. Uh, we've had a very 
uh, long uh, relationship with Russia. It's taken its, its had its ups and it's had its downs. Uh, Brezhnev and Nixon met and uh, paved the way for detente. Uh, then things went sour, and then Reagan and Gorbachev met, and they paved the way for an era of good relations. Then many of our subsequent presidents, they meet on a high note. They talk about things like reset. But by the time the eight years is over with, uh, there's still lots of problems. So I don't want to minimize any of that, but uh, I've looked at this from a lot of different points of view, and I really see that the the interests of Russia and the interests of the United States have a lot in common. Yes, there are divergencies. Uh, America's done things that the Russians don't like. Uh, Russia's done things that the Americans don't like. But when you compare it uh, to what we have in common as human beings, I recall, uh, if I may go back to that wonderful time when I ran for president in 1976, ancient history, I coined a, a phrase for my foreign policy. I called it planetary realism. And by that I meant was not utopianism, not uh, some delusionary optimism, but a real realism of what the world uh, is all about, but not national as much as planetary. We're all in it together. We share uh, the weapons, the ability to destroy humanity, we share the climate, we share the technology, we share the world economy, uh, the financial system. Uh, there's so many things that we can uh, pioneer together. Uh, here at the Fort Ross Dialogue, we look back. We look back to the Kashaya, uh, to the Alaskan natives. We want to reflect on the fact that the native people in California were here at least for 14,000 years, maybe longer. Uh, the uh, European uh, folks that have come here have not been here all that long, a few hundred years. And it isn't clear yet whether we will have the staying power that our native forebears had. So I think it's good to look to the past to develop a, a long-term thinking. Uh, we, it isn't just about the next election. Uh, we've had a lot of elections, and these problems, uh, they continue. But one thing that persists is the common interest in a more peaceful world and certainly avoiding uh, the worst of the dangers that modern technology uh, has made possible. The uh, ability and the power of mankind is growing uh, in the power to destroy as well as the power to create. But our wisdom and our sense of restraint, that's not growing in a proportionate way. So what we need to do is to reflect more to think long-term, and to listen. A dialogue is not a talk with somebody who agrees with you. A dialogue is listening to someone who doesn't agree with you and being present to that other person and listening. And as each person listens, inevitably, human beings can find common ground, particularly if they take the long perspective. So that's my opening. Just the fact that we're here, that you're here, Russians and Americans are talking is very important. And I see this just as a small step forward. And there's going to be many more steps to follow. No matter what they talk about in Washington, no matter what the rhetoric is, uh, the fact is America has a common interest with Russia. We fought a war together. The Russians were the ones who liberated uh, Auschwitz, who were absolutely indispensable in World War II. Uh, going forward, they're absolutely indispensable for our future. 
and their future we're responsible for. So anyway, uh, by the way, on your seat is a uh, review of Bill Perry's book, uh, My Journey at the Nuclear Brink. I want to give a little, uh, I don't want you to leave here just passively listening. I want you to read this. Take notes and think about it. Uh, I mean, this is the Commonwealth Club, right? You're supposed to think. Well, (laughs) this book by Bill Perry will make you think. And there's a lot there. And he didn't say, uh, talking in the past, his journey. He said his journey right now is at the nuclear brink. We are meeting at the nuclear brink. So wake up and uh, let's listen to our friends from Russia. Well, thank you again uh, for a pithy and terrifying opening. Uh, if, we're not, if we're not suitably inspired to, to have this conversation now, uh, I think we uh, maybe ought to read about the nuclear brink. Um, but I think we'll discuss it. I want to go next to the ambassador of the Russian Federation to the United States, Anatoly Ivanich uh, Antonov, who has also served as a nuclear negotiator, as deputy minister of defense and deputy minister of foreign affairs, uh, is very experienced in this topic. Uh, I'd like to give you an opening word, Ambassador, uh, but also suggest that at some point you take up the challenge as to whether we can, in fact, keep this terrible danger under control. If you don't mind, I will stay over Please. there because Please. I would like to draw more attention to me and to my words. <laughs> you may be the only Russian in Washington who would say such a thing. <laughs> I just uh, would like to uh, start uh, from words that I heard just now. It's a pity that Governor Brown does not walk on the Hill in White House and in State Department because I... <laughs> please, please don't consider that I interfere in your internal relations. It's not a medal. It's just only uh, my wish, you said, but to my regret, it's impossible, you said, to hear such uh, words that were heard today, you said, in San Francisco. And frankly, you said, uh, Matt, you said, I uh, would like to, no, I'm forced to disagree with you because uh, uh, atmosphere in San Francisco is different from Washington. If you uh, have more time, I, uh, I'm, uh, I can explain you what does it mean, toxic atmosphere around Russian ambassador as well as around Russian embassy. <laughs> Dear colleagues, uh, I would like to thank you for inviting me to speak and share a few thoughts on Russian-United States relations and prospects of their development. The format of our today's meeting is meant to ensure a free discussion and interactive communication. It's an honor for me to have such reputable and experienced politicians as Jerry Brown, William Perry, and Herman Graf as my interlocutors. As California governor, Jerry Brown made a substantial contribution to preserving Russian cultural historic heritage in Fort Ross. And now he spares no time and effort to help the bilateral ties out of their difficult state. Last week, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov met with U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on the sidelines of the 
74th session of the UN General Assembly. Yes, we had to begin the meeting with voicing our rejection of those unfriendly manifestations of United States policy towards Russia that had taken place prior to the talks, visa denial for the Russian delegation, and another round of anti-Russian sanctions. The conversation between the ministers was candid and open. We hope that the meeting will provide an additional impetus to our dialogue. I would like to know the recent intensification in our bilateral ties. We held consultations on strategic stability, counterterrorism, and bilateral problems. We successfully continue to exchange our views on North Korea and Afghanistan. Our militaries maintain contacts in Syria. An efficient and highly professional channel of communication was established between the chief of staff of the armed forces. We pay serious attention to economic ties the volume of which remains to be insignificant compared to their potential. That is why Russian President Vladimir Putin suggested establishing a business advisory council, which would unite representatives of big companies from both countries. Its goal would be to find ways to develop trade and economic cooperation. The United States administration supported the Russian proposal. Minister Lavrov and Secretary Pompeo confirmed their positive attitude to this initiative at their recent meeting. Despite Washington's tightening sanctions policy, the interest of the United States companies to the Russian market is growing. United States businessmen are unwilling to leave Russia. On the contrary, they intend to increase their industrial and investment presence. One example really speaks volume. The United States delegation at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum this year was the second largest after the Chinese delegation, altogether 540 people. We also agreed the participation of United States business circles in the Eastern Economic Forum. (coughs) Positive dynamics in bilateral trade for the third year in a row serves as another proof. It amounted to $16.1 billion at the first seven months of 2019, and it is the United States that increases its purchases. The United States still has the biggest share of direct investment in Russia. The estimated combined assets of approximately 3,000 American companies in our country are around $85 billion dollars. To overcome the negative trend in our relations, it is important to start addressing the problem of stockpiles of so-called irritants in our bilateral relations. This includes the arrest of Russian citizens in third countries upon United States requests, returning of the Russian diplomatic property, ending the so-called visa war, improving of the conditions for the functioning of our diplomatic missions. It goes without saying that it is time for Washington to abandon its flowered policy of pressuring other countries with sanctions. The practice has shown it's impossible to obtain concessions from us by exerting pressure. We believe the situation should be mended. 
we underscore the importance of overcoming mutual mistrust. We have been long proposing for exchange to exchange letters with guarantees of non-interference in domestic affairs of each other, just like when Franklin Roosevelt and Maxim Litvinov did when diplomatic relations were re-established in 1933. By the way, back uh, then it was Washington that insisted on the exchange. We are ready to give such assurances but have not received any positive reaction so far. In this context, we reiterate our proposal to establish a working group on cybersecurity. Professional discussions in this area will help ease misunderstandings and alleviate existing concerns. Arms control issues have always been and continue to be at the center of our relations. We are seriously concerned about the United States' actions leading to the collapse of the entire international security and strategic stability architecture, which took decades to develop. After its withdrawal from the ABM Treaty, Washington destroyed the INF Treaty. The United States refuses to ratify CTBT. Military capacity of the global missile defense is being bolstered the elements of which are proposed to be placed in outer space. Now the future of the new start is being questioned. I would like to remind you that NPT Review Conference will take place next year. The international community will expect positive news from us, from the United States and Russia, on nuclear disarmament, non-proliferation, and peaceful use uses of nuclear energy. We have no interest in arms race. In order to prevent an escalation of tensions, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the decision not to deploy intermediate-range and shorter-range ground-based missiles in Europe and other regions until similar United States weapons are fielded there. We call upon the United States and other NATO countries to join such moratorium. The history of nuclear missile agreements reminds us how hard it was to reach those breakthrough arrangements. Both sides demonstrated state wisdom, political courage, and understanding that a nuclear war cannot be won and must be never fought. It seems that this principle deserves to be reaffirmed today. By the way, prominent United States figures show their growing support for this idea. Here is an example. The Wall Street Journal article co-authored by former State Secretary George Schultz, Secretary of Defense William Perry, and Senator Sam Nunn, who call for cooperation with Russia in order to guarantee the nuclear weapons are never used. I would like to note that these are the words of the politicians who have learned not in theory from propagandist uh, rhetoric, but rather from personal experience, that the threat of nuclear war and nuclear annihilation is real thing. Next year, the entire world will celebrate the 75th anniversary of the victory over the Nazi Germany. We will be glad to welcome United States President in Moscow at the festivities. Our countries fought the Nazi together and paid an enormous price for the victory. The nations of the Soviet Union lost 27 million lives. 
almost 13.5 million of whom were civilian. No matter how distant the war days are, they will remain in the memory of the nations forever. Current attempts of some politicians to rewrite history, portraying batches as heroes, are recentful and outrageous. Russia and the United States have a common goal, not to allow distortion of the truth. On April 25th, we will again celebrate anniversary of the meeting of the Soviet and United States troops on the Elbe River. This event is among the most vibrant examples of our friendship. Unity and mutual support shown during the war day remain an example of how Russia and the United States can join forces for the sake of peace and stability. People-to-people contracts play a big role in preserving Russian-United States relations. We stand for increasing the number of mutual exchanges of our citizens within the framework of business, uh, personal, personal, uh, cultural, scientific, sports, as well as giant friendly and family relation, relations. I would like to remind you that during the Soccer World uh, Cup, our country was visited not only by many state and government leaders, but also, most importantly, by hundreds of thousands of soccer fans from across the world. 46,000 United States fans, second place after China. They swore the real Russia, an open, friendly, and modern country. The majority of guests were genuinely happy and expressed hope to come back. They personally experienced the hospitality of Russian people. This is, uh, this is a bright example of public diplomacy, which showed that all bogeyman stories about Russia are fake. In this regard, a recent Boston Globe article written by United States journalist and academician Stefan Kinzer is also illustrative. He shares impressions about his two-week trip to Russia, visiting a number of cities in five different time zones, including Moscow, Kazan, Novosibirsk, Irkutsk, and Olan Ude. I will quote, Wherever I went, I was struck by how different Russia is from our image of it. The Russia I found is vibrant, self-confident, largely free and hardly concerned about hostility from Washington. The author makes an important conclusion that Russia should be treated as a partner, not an adversary of the United States. By the way, Henry Kissinger, a famous and widely respected United States uh, politician, brought up the same idea at his recent meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Russia and United States relations cannot deteriorate forever. We all live under the same roof. We would need strategic stability, strategic stability, which in its turn depends on the nature and quality of the dialogue between Moscow and Washington. I would like to assure the participants of our discussions that Russian side will further seek to develop equal, mutually beneficial relations that would meet the interest of both countries. Thank you very much. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. I want to go next to Bill Perry, who was our 19th Secretary of Defense, but also a technology entrepreneur uh, and a leader in the intellectual space, including at Stanford University, not far from here, and author of the aforementioned books with the terrifying titles. So, Dr. Perry, the floor is yours. Thank you, Matt. Now, Matt, I have to say I approach this diplomatic issue we're talking about today with some humility, because we're in the presence of George Schultz, who was, in my opinion, perhaps the greatest Secretary of State that the United States has ever had. And that... And I remind you the competition for that title includes Henry Kissinger and Dean Acheson and, and Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> if you turn on the television tonight or tomorrow or the next night... You'll find many instances of talks and discussions and reports of people who are clearly Russophobes expressing an antagonism towards Russia. I consider myself a Russophile because I love Russian art. I never go to Moscow, but I go to the Tretyakov Gallery see this magnificent collection of pure Russian art. I love Russian music from um, Borodin to Shostakovich. I love <clears throat> Russian literature, Pushkin, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. So it's a great, great tradition, cultural tradition. Uh, having said that, I find myself opposed to some of the actions that Russia has taken in the last number of years. Uh, particularly in, including Ukraine, and particularly in, including interference with American elections. But whatever we do on that, these seem to me problems that we ought to be able to discuss and negotiate. But whether or not we succeed in doing that, there's a whole set of other issues, and those issues have to do with nuclear dangers. On those issues, unlike the ones I've described to you before, on those issues, the United States and Russia clearly have common interests. Neither of us want a nuclear war. Neither of us want nuclear proliferation. Neither of us want to see nuclear terrorism prosper. And to avoid any of those catastrophes, we need to be working together. And yet we're not. We're not working together. We're not. No dialogue, meaningful dialogue going either officially or unofficially, in this field today. Unlike during the Cold War, for example, where we had robust track to unofficial dialogue and we had meaningful official dialogue, which led to the conclusion and the signing of meaningful treaties limiting nuclear weapons. And today we're not in we're not that dialogue. We have no we are walking away from the treaties that we had formed, most recently being the INF Treaty, which in my judgment is one of the greatest 
nuclear bilateral treaties ever, ever signed, ever, ever negotiated. So my plea in this is that whether or not we can solve all these non-nuclear, important but non-nuclear issues, we must work together to solve this existential issue, which is nuclear dangers. Because failing to do so opens it up to a nuclear catastrophe. I'm convinced that today neither Russia nor the United States are planning to strike each other with nuclear forces even though each side is planning for the other side to do that. We're not planning to do that, and nor were we planning in the Cold War, when all of our strategies, all of our force deployments assumed that the Soviet Union was planning a surprise attack on us and a converse planning in the Soviet Union. The danger today is not that either side would strike the other side. The danger is that we would blunder, that we would blunder into a nuclear war. That was the danger, by the way, during the Cold War also. The poster child of a political miscalculation leading to a nuclear war, of course, was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Beyond blundering by a political miscalculation, we could have blundered by a technical error. Uh, I know personally of five different false alarms that occurred during the Cold War, any one of which had brought disaster, not just to our two countries, but to the planet. One Russian commentator commented that Russia is the only country, the only nation, that can reduce the United States to radioactive ash. That is, by the way, a true statement. It's also true that the United States is the only country that can reduce Russia to radioactive ash. Even more importantly, either Russia or the United States could reduce the planet, the planet, to radioactive ash. And in all our nuclear war, there will be no place to hide. And again, the danger is not that either country would deliberately do that, but that we would blunder into it through a political miscalculation or through a technical error. That was the case in the Cold War also. Today, in my judgment, the danger is even greater because there are new dangers that didn't exist during the Cold War. There's the danger of a regional nuclear war, for example, between Pakistan and India, which would cause havoc on the whole planet, not just devastation in those two countries. And there's the danger of a cyber attack, either in the United States or in Russia, on our nuclear control system. So those are very real dangers and dangers of a catastrophe of unimaginable dimensions and dangers which can only be controlled if the United States and Russia can talk together. If we can, as mathematicians say, separate the variables, set aside the problem we don't know how to deal with and deal with the problems that we can deal with because we really couldn't deal with the nuclear problem, we really could take agreements and actions that would greatly lower the dangers instead of the course we're on right now, which is walking away from what few treaties we had controlling those dangers. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Dr. Perry, and, and thank you again uh, to George Schultz for uh, honoring us with your presence today. Uh, I want to go last but not least to Gehrman uh, Greff, who is now the CEO and chairman of the executive board of Sparebank, which is uh, the largest bank in Russia, also previously served as Minister of Economy and Trade. Please, Mr. Greff. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much to everybody, and thank you very much for organizers for uh, giving me opportunity to participate on this very important meeting. And I think we have, now we have not so many opportunities to talk, to speak with uh, our American partners publicly. And I would like to start with my very short presentation from my bank. I would like to introduce what is Sberbank now. Uh, Sberbank is the oldest and largest Russian bank. It's a few of the numbers uh, about, about uh, our company. We have around 300,000 employees. We have more than 14,000 branches in, uh, in Russia. And we doing business in more than 70 countries. Uh, interesting that uh, if you look at the market share, you can see that uh, we have a huge market share with the biggest institution, not only in Russia, we are one of the biggest uh, financial institutions in the whole Europe. Um, our shareholder structure is very interesting because 50 plus 1 percent owned by the Russian Central Bank is the um, independent bank like uh, Federal Reserve. And 45% is the foreign investors. And not so many people know that around 40% of them, uh, of, uh, of them, it's American investors. And we are the organization like a bridge between two countries because 50% of the market share of Sberbank, uh, we, uh, our shares uh, placed in uh, the London Stock Exchange owned Russian Central Bank and for around 40% is American, a lot of American funds. And uh, if you look at this Sberbank now, now we are more than bank because we have a huge part of uh, uh, internet business and uh, high-tech business. If you look at our, at our active uh, customers in uh, retail and the uh, corporate business, more of them, mo most of them, they're online. They're doing a lot of different operations online. And if you look at the, our app, our online app is most frequently downloaded, downloaded banking app in the world. Uh, at the Russian market, uh, it's a unique situation that we are number five by uh, uh, in the app stores by the uh, all applications with uh, which uh, Russian people are using every day. Um, now we are more than forty three percent of all our products we are selling through the the digital channels and. The biggest um, uh, task for us, the biggest challenge for us to convert our business from the financial organization to the ecosystem. And now we are moving very fast to the digital ecosystem and we are the largest Russian ecosystem, which uh, uh, 
uh, include now 100 different companies, digital companies and high-tech companies. And uh, we have uh, only in our ecosystem, not financial ecosystem, uh, 66 million people who use our um, services every month. And uh, during the last years, we have done our huge high-tech transformation, agile transformation. Each our uh, software now is built by ourselves. Now we have more than 1,700 1, tribes uh, or teams which are doing everyday news, Burbank uh, business online. If you, if you look at the uh, Sberbank partnership, here on this slide you can look, uh, you can see all our largest U.S. Uh, customers and um, uh, big partners. We are the biggest partner worldwide for um, such a big companies like Apple, Google and Facebook. Uh, we have a big part of our business um, with Apple. For example, yesterday, um, when I come to my um, hotel, try to pay in a restaurant with Apple Pay, but it wasn't possible in the center of San Francisco. I, uh, uh, Ambassador Antonov, Invite, invited you to Russia, and I promise you, in, in each part of Russia, in each city in Russia, in each village in Russia, you can pay with Apple Pay. <laughs> in which, in each village, I promise you that we hundred percent of our requires use, uh, and you, in each our customer can use Apple Pay, and. Uh, now uh, we are the it's not working, Mr. Greff. Can we also get it for free then? <laughs> <laughs> Please, I, I promise you. If you, if if I, uh, if my promising is wrong, it would be free for everybody who sits here. <laughs> I can guarantee one hundred percent. But it's it's not it's on it's not the the thing. It's it's a real situation. <laughs> And we are doing the business together with our American friends every day. Every day we do more and more businesses together. And we don't have borders. We don't have a, um, a lot of um, discussions about uh, who are you from which country. Um, uh, uh, you bring this or this service, we are working together for improving our countries, for improving the business, for improving the, the life of, uh, of our customers. And uh, I can say that I, I work in Russian government for eight years. I have a best friend uh, in the U.S., uh, previous um, uh, Secretary of Commerce, Don Evans, is my biggest uh, friend for many, many years. And we spend uh, a lot of time together with him, and uh, I can say that he's a great person. 
And uh, I can't imagine situation in which uh, we can be divided and our friendship can be hurt by a political situation. And I think that what we need to create now all together, and I'm very thankful to um, Minister Schulz and Minister Perry and Governor Brown for such a clear message to the audience that we need each other, that we need uh, less suspicions, and we need to create more and more mutual trust and respect. And mutual trust and respect is only one fundament which will bring us to the future. And as a last uh, point of my uh, short speech, I would like to uh, show you our new campus in, in the, you can compare our campus uh, in Moscow with the uh, Apple campus in uh, California. listening to the podcast won't have seen uh, it does in fact look very much like silicon valley uh, with the important difference that in silicon valley in january you can't skate on the ponds or have snowball fights but i consider that an advantage um look we've got uh, a bit less than half an hour remaining uh, we've had some fantastic questions come in from the audience so what i'd like to do is ask each of our panelists uh, please to be brief in their answers, uh, but go one by one and direct some specific questions that I've received to each of you. Uh, I actually want to start with Dr. Perry. Uh, the question is, uh, why, relative to so many other challenges that we face, including global challenges, for instance, climate change, uh, the nuclear risk seems not really to be covered by the press. That certainly is the case, I think, in the United States. Um, and it seems also to be the case relative to the Cold War period, when it received quite a bit more coverage. Why do you think that is? Do you think uh, the public at large took the wrong lesson from the Cold War, relegated the issue to history? Uh, why don't we talk about this in the general public space? Well, to, to quote uh, Governor Brown, uh, the end of the world is not news. <laughs> it doesn't, it some, somehow doesn't attract the attention of the press. I think, I've thought about this a lot, and, and during the Cold War we did talk about it, we did think about it, we did write about it. But with the end of the Cold War, people seem to believe this threat was gone. That's just not true. The, uh, in my judgment, the danger of a nuclear catastrophe today is actually somewhat greater than it was during the Cold War. Somewhat greater. That's not just my single opinion. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, for example, a group of scientists 
originally formed by the scientists who developed the nuclear and the bombing in the Manhattan Project. Each year comes out with their so-called doomsday clock, where they predict how close we are to a nuclear catastrophe, which is doomsday. And their clock during the Cold War varied from two minutes to midnight, which was just one year, to seven minutes to midnight. At the time I was Secretary of Defense, the Cold War was over, it dropped all the way back to 15 minutes to midnight. But the assessment they made for this past, this past year was two minutes to midnight, which is equal to the worst year in the Cold War, one year in the Cold War, and worse than all the other years in the Cold War. So that's what I mean when I say the danger today is greater than it was during the Cold War. And yet, for reasons I don't really understand, Matt, the press doesn't write about it. There seems to be hardly any concern about it today. And they just assume that with the end of the Cold War, that danger was gone. Going from 70,000 nuclear weapons to 15,000 nuclear weapons, the difference between the Cold War and today is a big step forward. 15,000 nuclear weapons is still more than enough to destroy the planet. I remember when the Washington Post recently changed its slogan to democracy dies in darkness, uh, but then I read the coverage of Russia in the Post, I felt like appending the line, and everybody dies if we get Russia wrong. But uh, unfortunately, it, it is, it's almost like news when you start a conversation with journalists and say, oh, by the way, this is the one relationship that we just can't afford to get wrong. So I'm with you on that. It's, it's almost inexplicable. Minister Greff, uh, a question has come in about uh, climate change specifically and the fact that Russia and the United States are really still quite overwhelmingly oil and gas dependent, both in terms of uh, just running the economy overall, transportation, and also export. Um, and so I think uh, you're maybe the right person uh, to talk about whether you see that realistically changing on any kind of timetable that is going to make a difference in terms of the, the problem of climate change. Uh, <clears throat> now we work a lot with uh, entrepreneurs from the uh, all globe about the uh, climate change questions. Uh, only... Uh, last week I had a conversation about the plastic utilization. It, it's a great initiative from one of the biggest um, uh, entrepreneurs from U.S. And uh, we would like, we, we spoke with him maybe one hour, and uh, I think that we can create a lot of opportunities for um, the small uh, businesses and to, to change this terrible situation with plastic and uh, all the issues around uh, this problem. And uh, I think that uh, we are very interested in uh, uh, green energy and, uh, and the, the, all the questions, energy saving and uh, ecology uh, protection. And uh, I think it's a huge opportunity for that. We work with C3, you know, um, the huge company from also from Silicon Valley with um, uh, uh, the founder of, uh, uh, what's the name, uh, with Tom Zibel, C3. We work with him also to bring his solutions to the Russian market. And um, it brings a lot of... Uh, Business opportunities also it's a very important 
uh, what I can say, mission for the big companies to to participate in, 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 in this very important uh, task for everybody. Governor Brown, uh, I think this question is best directed to you. Uh, our audience is wondering about the role of citizens. Um, there are obviously many things that governments could do that they're not doing, and I think we've highlighted that across the board. Uh, but for those who care to see change, what is the most effective thing citizens can do directly right now? Probably most effective is to um, tell their congressperson and their senator to uh, take the what we're talking about today seriously, the danger of nuclear weapons, uh, the danger of cyber, uh, the danger of Russia and America uh, making a mistake like has almost happened several times in the past 50 years. So I think the, uh, the elected officials uh, care almost, there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, they don't care at all about the nuclear issue. There are some important people, and I put Nancy Pelosi in that category and some other members of Congress. But most of these people that you elect are asleep when it comes to the Russian-American relation. It's totally driven by, not totally driven, but very much influenced by tweets, uh, by hysterical articles, by taking something Russia does that we don't like, may not be so good, maybe bad, but then blowing it up and making it 10 times or 100 times worse. Uh, I think you've got to uh, buttonhole these members of Congress and, and ask them, what are you doing about it? And for the most part, they're doing nothing. And they're thinking about other things. But that is the way politics works. Since I've been doing this for 50 years, I was reflecting that it was uh, 1969 when I ran for my first office. So I've been doing this stuff for 50 years. And we in the political world listened and pay attention to what we have to. And so a certain amount of citizen pressure... Uh, is is essential. Mm. And so I think that could be good. I also think we need more visits between Russia and America. And on that score, I do think we got to wake up our own visa policy. I just heard yesterday from um, my Jesuit friends that the Jesuit theology was expecting five uh, foreign priests to come to their graduate school, and they were given scholarships, but before they could uh, get on the plane, they were denied visas. So a government that is afraid of priests, um, <laughs> th that's a problem. So I think we need to definitely get more tra more exchange, more trade. And uh, yes, we have all these other problems, but we've always had problems, and we can talk about them. Even in the Cold War, there was a lot of exchange. So this is a dialogue, and you can have that dialogue with your member of Congress. And these presidential candidates are coming out here. Ask a question. Hold up a sign. What are they talking about? And for the most part, uh, the campaigns are only about news of the day. And news of the day is the official permitted news in our particular system. But end of the world is not news of the day. And that's what we got to put on the, uh, on the agenda. And working through the problems with Russia. Not enough to yell and to say how horrible the world is. Um, no, you gotta, you got to take a step. And this dialogue today 
already this is controversial. In some minds, even to sit next to two Russians is controversial. Well, we got to end that kind of stupidity. We've got to talk. We've got, and we mean experts, the military, the intelligence, the Congress, the senators. They should all be in their own way, finding a way that these two nuclear powers that can do so much damage uh, starts doing the so much good that is also possible. Matt, could I make a brief Please. add-on to what Senator Brown just said, uh, Governor Brown just said, which I fully agree with. By the way, was that the launch of your Senate campaign, Governor? Or? Senate. <laughs> Everybody will vote in favor of you. There, there is today a bill pending in the, the in the legislature, uh, sponsored by Senator Markey and Congressman Ted Lieu. Ted Lieu, by the way, has spoken to this group before. He also was a student of mine, so I have special interest in that. But the bill, which would change the present situation, which only the president has the authorization to launch nuclear weapons, and no one can stop him. I don't know whether you and the audience appreciate it and understand this or not, but if the president of the United States decides to launch nuclear weapons, he can do that on his own authority alone, and no one, no one can legally stop him. This bill is intended to change that, and, I, and it deserves your support. It's not going to pass in this present configuration, but write to your congressman, write to your senator, offer some support for this, and get informed on what the issues are about it. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Dr. Perry. Am- Ambassador Antonov, I want to go to you next. Uh, Dr. Perry had previously mentioned, and a number of questions have come in from the audience, uh, about uh, the allegations of 2016 election interference and also <clears throat> about 2020. And you mentioned, uh, going back 80-some years, a mutual non-interference uh, agreement. Um, my question for you would be, uh, the, it seems that the Cold War dialogue about nuclear relations, that the damage that each side could do to one another uh, started from a very direct premise, which is we each accept that we are capable of doing severe harm to one another. How would you formulate this mutual non-interference proposal, the opening? What would be your opening proposal to Americans on this topic? A few remarks. First, uh, it seems to me that uh, Secretary Perry does not like CNN. (laughs) It seems to me because yesterday evening and today in the morning I watched CNN and there was no any word about Russian interference. It was about interference of uh, other countries into your elections. (laughs) You have to clarify what is going on, you see that in uh, the United States. And, of course, um, we can discuss this issue uh, uh, during many hours, but it's uh, not our goal to deal with this issue. Uh, It seems to me that we lost trust between the United States and Russia. Very soon, on 16th of November, we will celebrate 100th anniversary of very famous Soviet ambassador, Mr. Dabrian. He dealt with the Caribbean crisis, if you remember. He had direct 
communication lines to you're, you're referring to the Cuban Missile Crisis in 19- yes yeah. yes America, yeah. it's the Russian name is the Caribbean Crisis <laughs> sorry doing my moderator job I didn't know that I am from Russia <laughs> and I would like to be candid with you <laughs> so I just would like to remind you that uh, during those uh, days <clears throat> there was uh, direct communication between White House and Mr. Dabrin. There were some meetings, private meetings, confidential meetings between very senior officials from your administration and uh, Soviet ambassador. And today it's a lot of questions to me whether it is possible to compare those days and current events that we face uh, in Russian-American relations. It's rather difficult to say uh, what is better, what is more worst, because uh, those days, we faced a real danger of nuclear war. Could I say today that we are on the eve of a nuclear war? No. I totally disagree with those guys who will say that uh, nuclear war is very close uh, and we have uh, uh, to make some preparatory activities. But uh, we shouldn't avoid a possibility of nuclear war. That's why first step for us is to restore trust, to restore all channels of communications. We have, uh, I cannot say today that there is no uh, context between senior officials of Russian Federation and the United States. Yes, we have. But we need more. We would like to restore more channels and we would like to have thorough discussions of various issues of strategic uh, stability. And it's reality, uh, you see, that we uh, have even to, we have to think about the necessity to avoid a potential danger of any uh, uh, miscalculation of uh, efforts of the United States and Russia. And by the way, that's why you see that our first step, our first offer to the United States politician just only let's do let's exchange letters. It's up to you to decide between presidents, between ministers of foreign affairs, regarding regarding a necessity not to interfere into each other relations. Let's uh, confirm our readiness to stick to our position when we sign United uh, Nations Statute regarding. International order that was disrupted many times within the last years. And let's start from this very simple proposal that we have introduced. And then we will see whether we fulfill our commitments in this paper, in this letter, or not, and what could we do as a second step. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Um, Dr. Perry, I want to ask you this question. Uh, you have obviously advised uh, one president uh, quite closely and certainly many others. Uh, when you look at uh, whatever may remain of the presidency of Donald Trump and then whoever uh, becomes president next, um, what would you say to the president of the United States? What advice would you give right now today about what must be done?
I would first of all advise him that the danger, he should be very much more concerned than he is concerned now about the danger of a nuclear catastrophe. If he were so concerned, then there are steps he could take to reduce those dangers. Uh, one of those steps is to give up launch on warning as, a, as an option. That's, that's the possibility of a accidental nuclear war starting by responding falsely to an alarm, missile like the alarm that came in on the Hawaiian missile, for example, missile attack recently. If that had been a national level instead of a state level, how would we have responded to that? Um, so I would want to alert him to the very great danger of an accidental nuclear launch, which he is the one that has more than he is the sole person who has the authority to make that launch. And therefore, he should be very much aware of that danger, and that if he does make an order of launch, there's no way of calling it back. There's no way of destroying the missiles in flight. He has started a nuclear war, which will probably end life on this planet. So I would want him to be very much aware of those dangers, not just in generalities, but in specific terms, and the actions he can take to lower those dangers. Uh, I want to say something. Please, uh, go ahead. Uh, you know, nuclear is the most horrible of the possibilities. But the technology is changing very rapidly. We've heard a lot about cyber. Uh, I've spent dozens, many hours talking to experts on cyber. It's changing very rapidly. It can launch not only to affect an election, it can affect command and control. It can affect various uh, basic infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But more than that, now there's autonomous weapons and these drones and the price is coming down so that non-state actors could launch hundreds of drones. Uh, possibly, uh, we wouldn't know where they came from. So the technology, whether it's autonomous weapons, whether it's cyber, whether it's the bioengineering and synthetic life and all that that could do for bio, bio warfare, it's not getting easier. It's getting more difficult. So for lots of reasons, uh, Russia and America better start getting on the same side on the basic uh, challenges that the world faces. And then we have a bunch, of, a group of other nations that we have to talk to. And in the middle of all that, our political uh, world is completely divided and completely toxic and in some ways dysfunctional. So uh, we have a problem with Russia, but we got a problem with ourselves. And it's a big problem and it's not getting any better. So I'd say we got plenty to do and you won't read about it in most of those campaigns. I'm sorry about that. I don't even know if you read about it on CNN. But <laughs> Minister, excuse me, Matt, you said it. Yeah. Uh, I just would like to draw your attention, uh, and I would like you to think uh, uh, on my words. We are very much concerned what is going on in strategic stability. Today, we have just only one treaty between the United States and uh, Russia, START Treaty. And in uh, February 2021, there will be nothing between the United States. It will be the first time within 50 years. 50 years. And you see that it's very easy way out, taking into account um, short time. It's very easy just only to extend treaty as it is. And if uh, United States as well as the Russian Federation have their own concerns regarding other issues of strategic stability, it's high time for us to sit together and to tackle these issues. We are open for this. 
We are still waiting positive answer, positive reaction from administration. And one more, INF Treaty. You said that it seems, it's illusion this, that uh, these uh, types of missiles are not a danger for the United States. You said that it's illusion that if the United States uh, decide to deploy such missile in Europe or Asia, it will not affect uh, the security of the United States. I would like you to understand that if the United States deploys such missiles very close to Russia, we are forced to defend our country. We are forced to take appropriate measures to defend our country. It's high time for us to sit at the same table. Uh, we, it's high time for us to stop talking through mass media, blaming each other. It's high time for us to sit maybe in Geneva, in Vienna, in Washington, or in Moscow, and to deal with these issues very seriously. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Thanks, Thanks Ambassador. Uh, much as I like European cities with nice uh, cafe culture, uh, I'll propose Northern California as an alternative. Uh, <laughs> Minister Greff, I want to give you uh, just a very short minute to answer the last question, uh, which has been raised in the audience and I, I know is on a lot of people's minds, uh, and that's the question of sanctions. Uh, we've now gone through uh, about half a decade of very intensive uh, U.S.-led but also European and other sanctions directed at Russia, uh, principally in response to Ukraine but, but some other issues. The question for you is, uh, what has been the impact of those sanctions? What difference has it made? Uh, I don't want to speak a lot about the sanctions. We are fully compliant with the sanctions and uh, don't welcome uh, any restrictions. I, I think don't, uh, nobody likes the sanctions. But I, I would like to say a little bit, few words. Um, uh, what Mr. Perry said and uh, Governor Brown about the uh, threats. If you look at our, at our past, we see a lot of uh, nuclear uh, problems between the countries. If you look at the future, we can't imagine how many different problems, how many different threats we will face. And how we can, uh, what we can uh, counter against all these threats. I think only one thing, mutual trust and respect. And we need build it as a fundamental issue for our future. And uh, it depends only from the people, from the politicians, from the businessmen, and from the whole society. And I think that everybody must understand that it, this is the time. Just We need to just stop to speak. We need do. We need do build very, very uh, fundamental issue, trust between the people, and how we can do it in the existing situation. We have not so many chances. And uh, I would like to ask to each of you to start, do it. Thank you very much. I think it's... Uh, I've got... I've got a, a blinking 99 staring me in the face, which means the timer's up. Uh, I think it's probably a fitting concept to end this panel on, uh, since we have Secretary Schultz in the room. Uh,
trust but verify. So thank you all for being part of this. Uh, thank you to the panelists. And now I am empowered to close this panel with three. There we go. Thank you. Thank you.